Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> you were wait you were go on. You were waiting for that one. Kyle just took his laptop, put it nice and close to his face, and then did that so so quietly and intimately. That's great. Yeah, we'll put uh, it on the Instagram. Yes, we uh, we actually might put it on the Instagram because it's great. This is Kick the Jukebox. This is the Musicology podcast where we do a deep dive into an album of the week. This week, it's Paul McCartney's 1980 release, McCartney 2. It's also an exploration of our friendship and of our ever-evolving taste. <laughs> Kyle, wow. how, how you are you it. doing? Yeah, that's a, that was a good one today. I feel good about that one. For sure. <laughs> What's going on? I I am doing great. I've had a very, uh, very lazy week. Um, oh, lucky you. We, we yeah. reversed places for once this week. Well, because I was very busy doing some writing stuff with my brother on Monday, and yeah. then I kind of maxed out and never quite revved back up again after. Sure. So, yeah, it's been a very, uh, very slow week. It's been a slow week for you. Yeah, how about well, you? That's great. It sounds uh, like it may have been the opposite based on the fact that you just said that. So go on. <laughs> for me, Kyle, it was the opposite. I huh. taught for hours and hours this week, started a new exercise and eating routine. Ooh. Yeah. And was just on Zoom for like so long. Oh, and man. Yeah. It was a lot, but it was fun. Yeah, I taught a, a story pirates camp that was about making your own comics, so right up Ooh, my alley. That's awesome. And and we collaborated with one of our artists who does all the art for our pod our podcast and stuff. Mm. And I improvised through a live stream for 3 different days that was a continuing story with some wonderful story pirates that you, that you know, like Peter McNerney and Lene DePriest. We improvised through a story, and then Camilla, the artist, drew a full comic book of this improvised story. That's, that's like incredible. Super dope. Yeah. And she was literally doing it as we were improvising, and then after it was done, like right after the improv was done, she'd put the comic up on, her, on the Zoom and be like, here's my quick sketch. It'll be done by the next time we're all together. Like... Um, I mean, it was amazing. That's, like, that's Louis heaven. It really was. It was like all the things that I like and one thing except, oh no, there wasn't. So one of the exercises with the kids, this is actually worth really noting on this show because it's very on brand for us. One of the exercises with the kids was draw a message back to this alien who doesn't speak English. So use visual thing, you know, like use visual pictures they the kids were like we want the alien to be wearing a marshmallow hat and we want the alien or a, a cotton candy hat and we want the alien to of have course, dragon course, wings and all this stuff and it was great so i did a, this quick sketch of it the cotton candy hat looked completely like a devo energy dome <laughs> and i literally said to the kids you don't know this but there is this band that wears very funny hats that look like this and i'm going to make a note that this is supposed to be a cotton candy hat because I don't want 
Camilla, who's doing the final drawings of these, to be confused. And then <laughs> she just drew this character in an energy dome. That's amazing. Which is so, so funny. Yeah, <laughs> and kind of like, you know, inadvertently, you've like, you know, inserted Devo into a story pirate story, which um, I'm sure you're not, you're, I'm sure you're not uh, too disappointed about. Yeah. And it's not the first time that I've done that. <laughs> However, I really wasn't intending. And then, you know, Peter comes in to visit uh, Peter McNerney, star of the story pirates podcast. He comes in to, to like chat with all the kids on the last day of this camp and we're showing him the illustration and he's like, well, I'm completely not surprised that this character is now wearing a Devo hat in Louis. And I was like, I was like, this wasn't intentional, Peter. I, I almost feel bad about this. So anyway, yeah. that's that's what happened to me this week. Yeah, we really um our our energies were uh complete we're not we're not aligned this week, but that's right. We're Great, gonna nonetheless. Is, we're gonna have a big fight this week because our energies are <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what have you been listening to this week, music wise? So this week, so we're going to be covering, covering Paul McCartney and yeah. totally unrelated. Um, I've just gotten back. So there's this great record label from the eighties that was lasted very briefly called L records. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything the, about them. Tell me about that. Yeah. It's a really small label and they kind of were only big in like underground British circles in the eighties and like in Japan and pretty much the whole aesthetic of this label was like very twee cutesy hyper British like a uh, dandy-esque kind of like eighties pop. I've been listening to this like compilation of like kind of like the best of that label and I have to just recommend to listeners listen to the band would be goods and the song is called The Camera Loves Me. Listen to the whole album, but it's really, really fun. And I think you specifically would really like it, Louis. Nice. It's like it's like, you know, it's like cutesy 80s alt rock, or but like also put through it's kind of bubblegum-esque, but like also mm-hmm. like through the lens of 60s Britty British like dandy-esque kind of style, like bowler hats and like, you know, referencing like marmalade. Yes. Yes. I can get down with that twee stuff every once in a yeah. while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I've been listening to. Do you know, do you know the band, The Move? Very the move. well. No. Oh, you'd like The Move. They yeah. were a band from the mid sixties that then later on Jeff Lynn joined and then wow, they sort of became Electric Light Orchestra sort huh. of several members were shared and they have a song called omnibus <laughs> which the chorus is we could take a ride in my omnibus we will take it right to the terminus <laughs> which i <laughs> love which is like so and they're a little harder but they're that's such a twee like yeah. british line yeah i'm that's glad we're great. covering mccartney this week although this is not a particularly twee McCartney no 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 yeah which is which is different for him you know which I think we can we will talk about that fact but yes Yes. but but I I, I literally only made the comparison because they're both British yes totally (laughs) and that's totally a good reason to make a comparison like that (laughs) before we get into that uh, I just want to say this week I ended up watching last Saturday night after we finished recording I ended up watching Beastie Boys story the new uh, sort of Beastie Boys stage show with Mike D and Ad-Rock. And uh, I've always really loved the Beastie Boys and particularly up for me, Paul's Boutique. 
Yeah. And right. which I think is so great. And mm-hmm. I think we should cover on this podcast at some point. Sure. Uh, and I also have a real soft spot for License to Ill, which yep. I think is really great for what it is. Right. Um, and also something that struck me while I was watching it and the early footage specifically of Ad-Rock, who is supposed to be the heartthrob, is that he, in his late teens, early 20s, during that era, was a very strange mover. (laughs) And his uh, onstage persona, some of it definitely actually kind of reminded me of you, some of the stuff that you do on stage, which I thought was so funny. Like, you know, aggressive. (laughs) Now I have to see it. Yeah, aggressive Jewish. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So I've been listening, sort of getting back into them this week. And then thought of a whole idea for a Beastie Boys inspired stage show that I want to write. So we'll see if I get to that, which would be Hell like yeah. a, a vehicle for like three actors, which would be so fun, I think. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, which I think would be really fun. And then I, you know, had a really lovely week doing some sitting outside when I wasn't working, listening to just like a lot of like very old school hip hop. Mm. Uh, which is just like some of my favorite, some of my favorite stuff, you know, yeah. like early, you know, like early Sugar Hill record stuff. Oh, wow. That, that early. Yeah. And I love that stuff. That stuff yeah. I think is so joyous and so fun and like, yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so tight yeah. musically. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I'm a big Run DMC fan and you are, are not. And that is definitely something we need to explore at some point. Cause I, sure. I get a lot of joy from specifically listening to Run DMC who I find, I, which I, I get really emotional about Run DMC. Yeah. That'll be our first crossfire episode. Yeah, we will. We'll have a real <laughs> debate about it. But anyway, so yeah. So recommending some stuff that's pretty uh, mainstream and big and you're recommending some stuff that's a little more niche, which is great. So, you know, pick your poison we'll swap next week. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> So this is Kick the Jukebox, and if you're enjoying what you're hearing, before we get into the album of the week, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on all social media of your choice. We're there. You can. It's easy to find us. And uh, you can also, if you like supporting us, please support a cause of your choice by donation instead of giving any money to us via a Patreon or via Venmo or anything like that. Because the world is a place right now where we all kind of need to do our part to be responsible. So economic inequality, environmental, Black Lives Matter causes, we're here for all of them. Now that we've talked about those things, let's talk about McCartney 2. Woohoo! Yeah, released in 1980. Kyle, uh, this, is, this is one of yours, although the Beatles yep. loom very large in, in my sort of musical blueprint. Yes. Uh, this album, I hadn't heard it all the way through until we decided to cover it, and I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. But what made you gravitate towards doing this one instead of maybe one that's a little more beloved or something that's from the Beatles canon? Or Well, I think it was exciting for me in a few ways. One, I just like the idea of this album is my favorite thing. I love a huge artist and then exploring their, like, their weird, like, side project, you know, like, yeah. like, you know, Stevie Wonder's Secret Life of Plant, like the, the big artist when they are just, you know, go off the deep end a little bit uh, musically. And so that in and of itself excited me just knowing that, especially Paul McCartney had this weird kind of somewhat inaccessible for the time album. And then also 
I think it's a great way for a podcast like ours to start to talk about the Beatles because everything is such well-trodden ground. And, you know, there's not like even this album, there's nothing that hasn't been talked about when it comes to Paul McCartney. But I think it's a good combination of like, it's territory that hasn't really been delved and and explored quite like some of the other stuff and also it's just really fun really good and really weird so i just thought it was a good way kind of into the beatles from our perspective and like kind of the taste of our podcast yeah absolutely and i would say that this is definitely mccartney being so heavily influenced by the new wave trends at the time and also like some more experimental synthetic music stuff Right. He was apparently going and seeing John Cage at the time. And yep. and also I can hear, and co- critics have said this, I think this is a little less of an influence, but like I can hear like a bit of a Krautrock influence on this album as well. For sure. Uh, but definitely the other stuff is more is more prominent. And that's definitely a place where our music tastes really overlap. And we've covered so many big influential like punk, synth, synth rock, new wave albums on this show. So this is, I think, out of all the McCartney albums, McCartney solo albums we would do, this is the one that I think connects most to to the two of us yeah i think that's that's exactly right in 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 a few ways one exactly like you're describing i think this album is so it's so interesting for so many reasons because it comes out in 1980 and not only does it kind of usher in or suggest you know kind of some of the new wave trends that are coming up in the 80s but also like the late 80s stuff that kind of like the proto new wave stuff that influenced him like um, you know, talking heads and, and what we've discussed. And so it's interesting, like transitional album in terms of eras and styles, but also it's really interesting that it's Paul McCartney doing it and the way in which he is addressing and finally tackling kind of new way because he is one of a number of artists from the 60s and 70s who grappled with punk and new wave in and even like disco and post-disco in a lot of different ways. And there are a lot of early rockers who finally had to kind of come to terms with like new trends in popular music and rock. And the way in which a lot of them did it is really interesting. And I think while some of them, like you could maybe say like, and even he kind of struggled in the eighties as a lot of, you know, kind of sixties and seventies rockers did, but he also, I think on this album kind of used the new trends in rock and pop music to as an excuse to experiment in a really really fun way absolutely yeah he does not lose his sense of fun i think he embraces this in a way that also is non-embarrassing yes which i I think is is worth bringing up because some of these other guys had a really hard time wrapping their head around what was going on and it led to some really embarrassing recordings you know exactly yeah you know like there's some disco beach boy stuff from the mid 70s that's really terrible that and i love disco and i love the beach boys but they just don't really have a grapple on what makes disco work or even like a lot of like rolling stones stuff in like the 70s and 80s you know yep the later rolling stones stuff as well yeah definitely late 70s rolling stones uh just doesn't really work and then on the flip side of this just because it's something that I think is so interesting is even after McCartney and and John Lennon severed their co-writing partnership, you kind of can trace their trajectories together and see what was happening with both of them. And 
Lenin was a little more at this time vocal about who he was enjoying when it came to this entire scene. And, you know, Lennon's apparently his favorite band when this was released, when this album was released in 1980, just around this era was the B-52s, Yep, which is, you know, not a huge surprise, I would say, not to, you know, sidetrack too much, but the B-52s owe so much of their sound to Yoko Ono. And Mm. Lennon clearly loved what Yoko brought to the table musically. So it doesn't surprise me that he would like the B-52s. And then there's a story that I love that I told you a few weeks ago while we were hanging out. I've been thinking about that since you told me about it. It's the best. It's the best. (laughs) So Devo had an early show at Max's Kansas City. It might have even been the first time or second time they were up in New York to play. And they were certainly gaining some traction in New York. People liked them in New York. After they finished their set, they were in their car, literally figuring out where to park their car because they did not have a lot of money and they were planning on sleeping in their car for a few hours before driving back to Akron, where they were living at the time. And John Lennon ran up to the car and screamed through the window, yeah, 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 and then ran into the New York night. And apparently the band members were like, holy shit, that was John Lennon, who had just seen their show. You know, so, so the Beatles, the former Beatles, I should say, were aware of what was going on and were excited about it and, and were into it. And yeah. when this album was released, McCartney didn't, claim a lot of influence. Uh, He didn't really talk that publicly about his influences, but he had said in interviews that he admired David Byrne's spirit and Mm. and sort of David Byrne's attitude was so, so, you know, decidedly uncool. And uh, McCartney was really into that. So something that I love about this episode is that we don't need to do a background as to who McCartney is. Like even the most basic music fan knows, knows who he is, but it is good to talk about where he was at this point in his career. Yeah. Sure. So this was at a period where his second band wings, which was comprised of some very talented individuals, but really was a vehicle for his songwriting. It's Paul McCartney. Right. Wings was beginning to wind down and McCartney was at his, you know, he had a farm in Scotland and he, in 79, recorded, I think it was 20 demos that were all self-recorded, very much in the way that he recorded his first foray without the Beatles, which was McCartney, uh, which was released in 1970 and was recorded in 69 and 70. So he recorded all these tracks himself. He had, you know, of course, state-of-the-art home recording technology because he's Paul fucking McCartney. (laughs) And that meant that he had a lot of new synths to play with and a lot of good, good recordings to play with there. Uh, One of those recordings, (laughs) it's worth mentioning. Yes. Releases a single is Wonderful Christmas Time. Yep. The much reviled (laughs) Wonderful Christmas Time, which I don't mind so much. Neither Uh, do I. Neither do I. Yeah. People hate it. Right. Yeah. I think it's because we're Jewish. It, it might be because we're Jewish. Uh, yeah, so we don't hear it as much, maybe, yeah. as other people. There's other Christmas stuff I really can't wrap my head around enjoying. But I like Wonderful Christmas Time specifically because it's the synths on it is are so strange. Right. Uh, which is, and, uh, it's so aggressive and, like, 
yeah. mean, same with the, all the other recordings from this session and that are on this album. It's like, you know, the synths are pretty far forward on some of these songs. Yeah, yeah. He he wasn't shying away from using them. Right. In, in a really aggressive way. I agree with that. And I guess when it comes on at a mall, Wonderful Christmas Time, it really is really jarring compared yes. to like all the other Christmas songs. Yes. So yes. I can understand why people, you know, it really, it really throws them off. But I always enjoy that. I'm like, oh, great. Here's like the weird new wave song in right. the middle of this that isn't Christmas rapping, by the way. Tristan, right. Of course. <laughs> so he had written and recorded most of this stuff in 79. And then he was prepping to go on this jaunt to play with Wings in Japan which was going to be very exciting for him because his visa had not been renewed for multiple years to go play Japan shows because of his arrests due to marijuana possession. And this is an important part of the story because what happens? He lands in Japan to do this tour. And then... He didn't uh, just have a little bit of weed. He just didn't have a, a, a dime bag. Did you write down how many grams of weed he had? I think it was like... I believe it was 216 grams. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, he clearly didn't learn from his past mistakes. And, like, I guess he couldn't get weed in Japan, you know? Uh, I feel like it might have must have just been some sort of fuck you, I'm going to try to do it anyway. Maybe, maybe, because this is clearly a self-destructive move. So yeah. he the weed was found right away when he landed, and then he was jailed for nine days, which sucks. <laughs> Yep. And then he was sent sent home. So no, no, you know, tour canceled, wings shows canceled. And this yep. was at the tail end of wings. So clearly there was something restless in him and something that he was trying to figure out about himself and recalibrate for himself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So then he goes back to his Scottish farm and he ends up finishing these recordings and releasing his first solo recording in 10 years, basically. And that's McCartney too. Yeah, so, I think so it was kind of at. a yeah, it was a kind of a confluence of a lot of weird good and bad luck because I think you know, he has said about the recordings he never and I believe I believe it, he never intended to release any of these songs. He even in one interview he said he thought he was just going to put it on a cassette to show friends if they were in the car with him just to be like check out this stuff I've been working on like this weird Check, you want to hear the weird Paul McCartney stuff? Sure. You know, like, <laughs> he really never intended to release it. And he only released 10 out of the 20 demos or whatever, you know, the 20 tracks um, mm -hmm. or so that he were on the original release. They did a deluxe kind of edition uh, a few years ago with all the other tracks, which are also amazing. Yeah, the other um, tracks, just to touch on them for a second, some of them are more written like regular songs and are actually a little more mainstream. Some of the right. bonus tracks compared to what he decided to put on this album. Which is yes. interesting. It shows the mindset he was in at the time. Yeah, and then you have Secret Friend, which is 10 minutes long and like a weird synth, like Odyssey. Yes. Which is awesome. By it the is. Way. It's very good, Secret Friend. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. And that 10-minute long version is great. There's another version of it that's on the B-side of the temporary secretary single, right. which we are going to get into today. Yes. Um, but yeah, just the last thing I want to say um, is, yeah, like... I think so. He he recorded all this stuff. He really just wanted to have fun, play around with the new technology, also try you know doing everything himself. 
um, which we can talk about kind of like this early like lo-fi bedroom pop thing where he just literally is in a room in his bedroom recording all this stuff with this equipment. But I think if it hadn't been for his arrest and which probably sped up his desire to leave Wings or disband Wings, I think he just like put this out to be like, let's get a record out there. And thank God, thank God that that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Or else we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Yes, indeed. Well, let's listen to a little bit of the first track we're going to cover today coming up, which is the first track from the album and the first single, and then we will talk about it. For friends before and asked them who do you think this is and very few of them guessed paul mccartney yeah which is awesome yeah I love that, that, that that's true <laughs> yes yeah and you know definitely you can hear it if you're listening for it in his vocal inflections there's some right. stuff that's so him the way yeah. he sings certain things but then the entire arrangement of the song and the structure of the song feels really different than at least what we had heard from McCartney in the 70s, for sure. Yeah, for sure. He was still gunning to write really big, fun pop and succeeding, you know, big radio hits, Live and Let Die and Jet and Band on the Run, you know, and maybe I'm Amazed and stuff like that, you know, which are all great songs. And then this comes around accompanied by a completely weird video. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> which is very Talking Heads-esque too, I think. I agree. Yeah, and I think that this song sounds so much like a Talking Heads song from the first like two Talking Heads albums, maybe. Yeah. And yep. so I asked Chris Franz about this this week in prep hmm. for this Oh, amazing. Yeah, you know, because when I, you know, because I try to be, I don't try to take advantage of my friendship with Chris, but uh, when something like this comes up, I know that he'll probably be happy to talk about it. Right. And Chris had a really interesting response in that he loves this song. He remembers when it came out. None of them ever thought it sounded like a Talking Heads song. Wow, interesting. Which is so interesting, which I think is when you're too close to a style. Perhaps you can't quite realize that someone is completely trying to pay tribute to your style. I would say even more than Mimic. This is like a tribute. Yeah, and I guess in the context of 1980, you're hearing all the other people, and probably they heard a lot of other bands who they thought were ripping them off more. Definitely. Um, You know, so like looking back, it's easier to see the comparisons than when, not only when you're in it, but when you are it. Definitely. I think that's completely true. And I think that too, sometimes it does take 
sort of the mega fans like someone like me to draw the comparison that mm. you can be just a little too intimately involved with the process sometimes mm -hmm. to be able to see something like this but something that chris vividly remembers which he's told me about before which is worth noting within the, this whole context is that chris and tina heard from paul and linda specifically after they released Little Creatures, which was the first time they heard from them. Mm. Little Creatures is a Talking Heads album that definitely has much more of a conventional pop sound than their previous albums did. They mm -hmm. said it was their favorite of all of the Talking Heads albums so far. Wow. And they sent them one of Linda's vegetarian cookbooks. <laughs> and Chris and Tina were thrilled to hear from them. So, so it's 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 very nice. Um, but definitely the influence, I would argue, spans previous to that interaction that they had, which was right. five years later in 1985. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> this song I, I think that the place where the talking heads influence is the most prevalent is in that uh, guitar line right that guitar line is so tightly wound and herky-jerky and yep. white funk influenced yep. <laughs> like yep. really almost sounds like it could have been invented specifically by david byrne sure. as much as sometimes i say mean things about david byrne he <laughs> a hell of a rhythm guitarist this video is great because it's it's mccartney playing all these different types of rock stars in, in a yep. giant band together that is called Plastic Max, <laughs> which is which is a reference to Plastic Ono Band, mm -hmm. and then um, and so there's different there's you know versions of McCartney where he looks like Buddy Holly, uh, yeah, ooey you, and then uh, <laughs> McCartney looking like 1966 era McCartney as well. That was weird to see because he still so looks kind of young, but he's like. He, <laughs> Yeah, he's got the, like, mop top and everything. It's just weird to see him parody himself, but, like, not so far. You know, if he did it now, it wouldn't be as uncanny as it was, like, 1980, because he's just slightly noticeably older. You yeah, know what I, mean? I agree. I think that he's he's just older enough that it falls into uncanny valley territory. Yeah, for sure. And that was something I was chatting as well with friend of the podcast, uh, Allison Boron, about this album. She hosts Because the Beatles, or the Beatles podcast. And something that she said about this album is for her, it's she's very so-so on this record. It's not Yeah, I think a lot thing. of like hardcore Beatles fans don't like this album as yes. much as the cash. Other people. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think you're right about that. But something she specifically noted is that there were a lot of screen grabs of the coming up video in mid-90s to late-90s internet Beatles fandom. Really? Yes, because less young fans had seen this video at the time because, you know, this is early ages, stages of the internet where all the information wasn't just so readily available. And there were like hardcore debates what this was and when this picture was taken. <laughs> wow, that's of the like him pretending to be young. Yeah, of him pretending wow. to be young party and the and the fans not being able to quite figure out what's going on with it. That's so funny. <laughs> so this song was released before the album came out and generated a lot of excitement because yep. people liked this. This was quite accessible. And it is. This is like a light 
really uh, joyous pop number. And it's cool, I would imagine, like, you know, critics and fans at the time being like, whoa, Paul McCartney is taking a really interesting leap into, like, new new sounds like he sounds that's what you want from someone it's like he sounds Mm -hmm. new it sounds contemporary this is definitely a leap for him but it still sounds like or or it's still like a great Paul McCartney song you know what I mean like that's what you want if you're a big fan yeah I agree with that 100% like it is it's it's taking big leaps but is still within the vein of like him really being able to write a fucking song this guy you know absolutely uh, and also, this song was performed live in 79 by Wings, like, during that run of shows that they were doing. And then uh, this is, I think, kind of interesting. That band version of it, which was this single's B-side, is actually the version that charted very well. The B- it was slid- a number one hit in the yeah, U.S. Number one in the U.S., number that two in the insane. U.K. That was insane. I learned that just doing research. I could not believe that. I did yeah. not know that. No, no, no. It's it's totally awesome. Um, yeah. And it's not a huge surprise, but I do think it's worth noting that it's this more kind of organic, normal sounding version yeah. and the less esoteric, slightly removed and robotic version that is the the McCartney solo version, you know? Which I do prefer. I prefer the like one, the album version. Oh yeah. And also what was interesting, something I read. So on the album version in keeping with the rest of the album, you know, he's, you know, playing around with studio technology and his voice is like pitched up. Mm-hmm. So that's why, that's another reason that it's hard to tell that it's him. Cause he's, you know, messing with his vocals. But the reason that they released the live version as a single in the U S is because they one they were like, Oh, Americans want to be able to tell it's Paul McCartney and they like his voice better. And I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. You know, radio markets. Yeah. You want to be able to tell who's singing right, right away. So that makes it more marketable when this, the album that followed this single release was really, I don't think what any radio programmer was looking for at the time. Yes, exactly. And I and, think, um, no, like, I think we could say definitively, like people say this about a lot of albums, but like people didn't get it and they did not like it at the time. I yeah. think it's pretty universal. Yeah. They weren't into it. They didn't want to hear it. No, uh, no, it got pretty much u- universally poor reviews. Yep, And it's gotten some much more warm in retrospect reviews, especially right. by people who see what happened with music after this album as well. And it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible to chart that the, the, the path and trajectory of this album and the influence of this album. Yeah, absolutely. So that being said, I think that's a great way to talk about start talking about temporary secretary. I agree. So let's give it a bit of a listen. Let's do it. Secretary is what I need for to do that. 
why did why did you pick this one out of all the gems on this album to talk about? This one, I mean, a lot of reasons. One, it's just like you know, you start the album, first track coming up, you're like, oh, this is very different, but this is like cool and still, even though it's like angular, you know, Talking Heads was already out, New Wave was happening, like this is, I mean, it was a hit, so you know, it was clearly accessible. Then this is track two. Imagine like the casual Beatles fan like picking this up at like Tower Records in 1980, like you know, a 45-year-old like, you know, like housewife just being, oh, it's the new Paul McCartney, and then getting to this track and being like, I'm scared and I don't know what the fuck is happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is like 1980, so like this is before any like like electro pop like synth pop is mainstream in any serious way even like you know the disco stuff you know donna summer and you know giorgio moroder were getting into that territory but that type of like really synth heavy disco never really took hold here as much as it did in europe Certainly. but like but and then you have this like really as i was saying like the synth and this sequencer line is like it smacks you in the face right at the beginning of the track and just plays throughout and it's just a weird fucking song and it's awesome and then you know also in terms of the history of this album it's really important because i think it started to be rediscovered in the like 90s in 2000s because this track became like a club track in like the uk and bands That's, like Hot I didn't know Chip, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this song was like a big they would play this in clubs and um specifically Hot Chip has said that this album and this song was a big big influence um and I think it helped you know spur on the rediscovery of this album and you can hear I mean a lot of different tracks on this album but like you know the like synth pop wave that happened you know like hot chip or the knife you know uh latigra even like i think owe a lot to this sound and it's just crazy how ahead of its time it was no oh, i i i very much agree with all of that i think that definitely as well i agree that at the time people were looking at it as being inaccessible yeah. But I just want to break it down for a second because something that I think is really one of the funniest, cheekiest things about specifically this song, I don't feel this is the case for the rest of the album, but in this case, the synthesizer is really just being used as a drone. Right. And it's not even on key in yeah. <laughs> terms of the song. And then he's got a really traditional sort of guitar progression underneath this song that makes it just puts it like really firmly into the camp of like what he writes right like this isn't completely and this is not a, a complaint against the song i think this is just a really really very typically charming funny paul mccartney song right yeah i think that's a really good point because the like quirky silk i mean you know the Paul McCartney being silly and uncool is a, and we could talk more about that in the context of what that means with this album, but like that was, that's a thing he's been fighting against, but also playing up his whole career. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely a charm to it. And yeah, so, something about all I love that stuff. I love the silly love songs. That's, you know, I'm a Paul McCartney person, but you know, that's from the like cool raucous press, like they, that side of him, they've like shit on his whole career. Well, that's something that I think is a cool thing for us to talk about as comedians is that I really, really feel like the Beatles wouldn't have had the career that they had 
in the 60s and then separately without their really fantastic senses of humor. For they sure. were just hysterical guys and yep. they were really just as, as funny as they were talented musically. And that's, I think, one of the things that keeps drawing me back to them is I think the songs are witty and there's a real empathy and, huma and a humanity to them. And I think that this falls into the same camp as like an Eleanor Rigby or, mm -hmm. or as I think that the song is very similar specifically to Paperback Writer. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I was surprised that there aren't more reviews that are like, oh, this is like another kind of slice of life, working class kind yeah, for of, sure. uh, you know, even structurally, the way the way the lines are written to me sound a lot like paperback writer, mm. uh, verse wise. Um, he claims McCartney claims that this was influenced by Ian Dury, which is yeah. cool, which I can hear for sure. And he also just claims that his big, you know, the reason why he wanted to write about this is he just thought it was kind of funny and, and yeah, kind right. of cheeky. He yep. had used temporary secretaries here and there over the years because his like affairs were in a bit of a mess and he needed somebody <laughs> to like help him like just do filing and stuff, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, yeah. yeah, that totally makes sense. Like I totally get it. And then there's, you know, like, there's like this bridge, this like robotic bridge, you know, that's like, I don't need a diplomat, you know, <laughs> like, uh, right, yeah. you know, all these things he doesn't need. He doesn't need someone who's, you know, their time would be taken up doing better things than being his <laughs> right. secretary, which is kind of nice too. You yeah, know, yeah. I think it shows kind of this unassuming ego, you know right. what I mean as well. Yeah. So, so I feel like this one, <laughs> is it i just don't think it's as weird as as people actually think it is i think that the synth is what really does it you know right i i, I think that's a very good point and why i think the reviews at the time were unfair or superficial yeah we're kind of cruel yeah, yeah i absolutely agree yeah I, I agree with that very much and like <laughs> the the cover of this single is like a caricature of mccartney with this with a uh, secretary yeah. sitting on his lap, yeah. which is, you know, very early 80s British cheeky is what I'm right. going to say. Wouldn't fly now. Shouldn't fly now. For it's, sure. It's okay for the era that it was in. And then this this was backed by, on the single, this was backed by, I, I think, a shorter version of... Secret Friend. Secret Friend, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is like, Secret Friend is odd, you know. Secret yeah. Friend is really strange. A weird, weird, very cool ethereal. There's ethereal vocals on that, right? But not really anything that concrete. Or is it? It's not not a total instrumental. No, it's not an instrumental. And the the lyrics and the vocals are like a, a bit more buried. Yeah, that's right. They're a bit more buried in the mix. But that's I could certainly see people flipping over temporary secretary and listening to Secret Friend and being like, "Oh fuck this! What's right. this guy doing?" Because that's I don't more feel... drony than I think. Whereas, like this, you have like kind of like it's. I mean, it's it's super rhythmic that like sequencer line. I mean, like aggressively rhythm rhythmic on um, temporary secretary, and then you get to secret friend, and it's more of this like drony kind of like sleepy synth exploration. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that definitely I feel is actually a little more ahead of its time in sure. terms of being put on any sort of like pop release. Yeah, you know? interesting. Yeah, true. Yeah, compared to this, there was there was a critic who called this one a sexy song, 
which <laughs> that, you know, whatever floats your boat. I don't know <laughs> for this one. And I don't yeah. know if McCarty was really trying to be sexy at all. <laughs> no, I don't think. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. If you, if you think that's sexy, then you that, are. That's um, great. That's great. I'm not going to judge you. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> Clearly neither of us think it's particularly sexy, but. No, no, no. <laughs> all right. Let's get into the, his, some of his instrumentals. We decided to talk about both of the instrumentals on this record, Front Parlor and Frozen Jab. Maybe we'll do 30 seconds of one and 30 seconds of the other. those icy synths on frozen jap they're really yeah, me too amazing yeah. they're so interesting so these two mccarty instrumental tracks mm-hmm. and they definitely you'd never think they were from him in right. terms of the way they sound yep you know something about the mccartney sound because he plays his bass left-handed but it's a right-handed bass that's one of the things that contributes so much to the Beatles sound and it's so unique and so so striking so to kind of remove that tool from his arsenal for this entire album I think is one of the things that makes it so not like his other stuff you know yeah that's that's a really interesting point yeah and again to go back to you know the unassuming Beatles fan picking this up in 1980 it's gonna be jarring or you know surprising but i think these are really really sweet accessible little instrumental pop songs in their own way i mean especially looking back but what i what i kind of love about these that a lot has been made of this album kind of being a precursor not only to like synth pop but a lot of later synth pop but also kind of the like lo-fi bedroom pop kind of thing like uh sebado or even like more recently like ariel pink and things like that I just think, you know, if, if this is Paul McCartney just experimenting and just wanting to work with synths and like experiment with new technology, just like kind of comparing to how people make music now, these just seem like him having a lot of fun with the technology because, you know, even when I like have like just messed around and made beats like everyone you know, like a lot of people do, you know, you lay down like a a beat and then you play with the synth melodies over it and you just find something that sounds cool and you keep, you you know, you keep the track going and going and going until you find some cool melody and, and you lay it down. And that's exactly, I just think on both of these songs, it's like, I can just imagine him having a lot of fun playing around with this stuff on these. Definitely. And I think that one of the reasons why it sounds a little ahead of its time is 
only because McCartney was in the position of being the most famous rock star in the world to just have really, really, really great stuff in his home to do yes. this sort of work with, you know? I think that's exactly right. I mean, like, he is one of the very, I think it was a confluence of a lot of things that allowed him to be ahead of his time. One, again, he had the money to just buy all yeah. this crazy equipment. And then also he's Paul McCartney in 1980. So there's nothing stopping him from putting this out. Like, fuck it. I'll put out a fucking weird ass album. I'll, if, if I, every, he knows from, from now until eternity, people will buy a Paul McCartney album. So I can just, you know, there's no pressure to just put out something weird and experimental. I wish he had, I mean, he's done it later, but, and I wish he did more of it in the eighties. I think he's always kind of had this, he, I think he likes to make big populist um, hits, big like pop songs, like in the sense of like, what are the big trends right now? But I think this is the only album where like exper of, of his, where experimentation was the whole point of it. Whereas he's, he's experimented and done some weird stuff over the years, but like never in the same way has experimentation or never since at least has experimentation been the whole point. I, I agree with that. I feel like he goes through s rhythms as a solo artist. You know, he's gone through these sort of rhythms over the last like 40, 45 years that sort of waffle between this mindset that you're going to buy this record anyway, so I'm going to do whatever I want on it. Yeah. Which I think he's done several times in his career to varying degrees of success, both, you know, artistic success and commercial success. Yep. And then also, oh, I really do want you to, to like me. Right. Uh, I actually do care. You know, yeah. and there does seem to be some of that on some of his, his albums as well. But, you know, growing up, uh, when I was a teenager, big in, in my, my house was, was the album Flaming Pie, which mm. actually played a really huge part in me coming out to my parents because of some wow, of the songs on that album. Yeah, yeah, which I've talked about on that because the Beatles podcast I was just on and I wrote about it in an article for Rebeat. So I won't rehash it now, but... That album, just to contrast, is so songwriting driven and it's almost like a, a roots rock record huh. or almost folky in a lot of ways and is very, very, very well conceived to be accessible. Yeah. And I would even argue that some stuff lately is a little more on the vein of McCartney too. Like the yeah. one that just came out, uh, Egypt Station, Which, does have, uh, has some stuff that is like very, very pop oriented in a way that like I don't really care about. And right. it has some good McCartney-esque songs. And then it has some sort of esoteric stuff as well. All right. I got to look at that because I, I heard some of the singles and I was just like, oof. Yeah, I the singles know. aren't my fave. Yeah. yeah, from yeah. that, like listening to it all the way through, it's like not my favorite. I wouldn't listen to it all the time, but I certainly didn't mind giving it a few spins when it came out. All right. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I like to, I'm glad. Okay. Yeah, but no, but, but I would, I'm not being like, oh my God, it's great. Let's cover <laughs> it next week. Uh, that's not what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying at all. I'm like, I think it's really uneven. Um, yeah. Let's, let's, let's have it be that the only Beatles uh, canon stuff that we're going to cover is McCartney 2 and Egypt Station. That would be so <laughs> off. That would be taking this discussion, which is very on brand for us and making it very off brand. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Another thing about these instrumentals that I want to bring up, just because I think that it's not an example of influence, but I do think it's an example of certain really smart people all thinking 
alike at the same time mm-hmm. is how much this reminds me of early iconic video game scores. Yeah, interesting. And, and That's into, a really good point. Yeah, yes. like eight, you know, like good iconic 8-bit right. into sort of early 16-bit video game scores as well. The main yeah. reason why I make this connection is because in the mid-80s, Paul and Linda did travel back to Japan specifically I don't know if it was specifically, but they made a point of going and meeting all the people who developed the Super Mario Brothers game because huh. they loved it. Wow. And, and they had apparently a really lovely connection with the composer of that game, Koji Kondo, who huh. comes from the modern jazz background. But you can hear, I think in Kondo's writing for those games, you can hear a really similar reggae influence to a lot of what McCartney was doing specifically in the 70s. Yes, for sure. They come from the same place, and I just think it's interesting to make that equation, although this is 1980, so this is several years before any of that gained any cultural prominence. But I think it's kind of cool, you know? Yeah, I think I never thought about that, but that's that's really, really a good point. But also to bring it back kind of the other direction, sure. specifically on both of these tracks, but specifically on Front Parlor, I heard kind of a modern interpretation of like, maybe some of like the 60s instrumental pop stuff, like Joe Meek, um, like sure. Telstar stuff, but like, you know, brought up to date with synths. And I thought that was really kind of fun. Uh, it sounded like a modern Telstar to me. Yeah, that is so interesting because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately about the Beatles' relationship to the 60s mm. and how... If you talk to anybody, the Beatles are the epitome of the 60s. Right. But if you listen to them, I feel that they're actually somewhat removed in the music that they were making. And Mm. I sort of group the Beatles in one category in terms of their production style, you know, most attributed to George Martin. And then really in terms of the way that they play their instruments, Paul's bass, the arrangements are so different than like, anything that was happening with the other big bands. They don't sound like the Stones and they don't right. sound like the Animals and they don't yep. sound like, you know, the Beach Boys. They don't. They don't yeah. sound like those other bands at all. Although I think there's more overlap between what like the Stones, the Animals, the Beach Boys, you know, those groups were all doing. There is more hmm. of, a, of an overlap there. But I, I feel like there's maybe certain genres from the 60s that the Beatles really loved that they weren't maybe comfortable playing in because yeah. they wanted to maintain a Beatles sound. Mm. And, and that that is something that, yeah, like the Joe Meek stuff, you know, Telstar, for right. sure Front Parlor sounds like that. And John Lennon's favorite band being the B-52s in the early 80s, late 70s, I was thinking about, I was watching a live B-52 show last night because it's how I unwind after a busy work week. And Uh I was thinking about specifically how interesting that is for John Lennon to like them because they're so influenced by surf, which at Mm. the time was considered so trashy uh, comparatively to the Beatles. But probably 
Lennon was putting on surf records and really liking them at the time and not feeling comfortable experimenting that way. Right. Or like he heard the B-52s and then he let himself like it. Absolutely. You know I mean? Or he, yeah. Yeah. 10 years, 10 years passed. Right. And here's this sort of surf rocks from space that he was like, yep, I get it. I get it. And I yeah. think that, I think that that's what's happening on this album as well with McCartney. He's yeah. like, I see you. I see you, you young Turks. <laughs> yep. And I yeah. think uh, I think a nice way to wrap it up in a kind of in a nice way, but on a sad note, John Lennon heard coming up and he said, you know, that was a re- it's a really great piece of work. And apparently it's what inspired him to get back into the studio. And I think, you know, kind of I could see why he would like that song, John Lennon. Definitely. And also, you know, what, knowing what we know about his newfound fascination with like Devo and and uh, the B-52s and probably the Talking Heads, too, you know, right before he died, you know, we could imagine it's sad to think, you know, I think we can say with confidence he would have had he that's where he would have been going yeah yeah it's and especially true. knowing that th- coming up kind of was the one it was one of the impetuses for him to get back into the studio yeah you know i really try not to think too much about what lennon's career would have been like past his death if he had sure. not been killed mainly because I do believe, just like the rest of the Beatles, he would have had his highs and his lows. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. But but that being said, I do think that it would have been amazing to hear a Lennon album that was, you know, maybe produced by Brian Eno or someone like that. And it's a shame yeah. we never got that. Yeah. Yep, for sure. But we do have McCartney's too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is sort of a, cl- a, close, a close second. <laughs> well, McCartney died in, um, you know, 1967. So that's right. That's uh, right. This is Billy so- Shears. This is Shears too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, that was really, really, really fun. I'm. This was a great way for us to get into the Beatles. Yeah. 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 In, very- in, a, in, a, in a in a very kick the jukebox way. Yes, in a very kick the jukebox way. So listen, if you enjoyed what you heard. Once again, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on social media. You can donate to a charity of your choice. Kyle, this has been a pleasure. As always. We will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah.